Hello, thanks for tuning in to the Upgraded Life podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Sotelo. The Upgraded Life is my personal project where I help people realize and reach their potential. I've been a professional helper for 20 years. Here's what I'm convinced of. The life that you have right now and the life that you want tomorrow is a product of your personal mindset, mission, and movement. Each episode of the Upgraded Life podcast is going to give you something that you can do as soon as the episode is over to upgrade your personal mindset. Your mindset informs your mission. Your mission tells you how to move every single day. And together, that is the Upgraded Life. All right, welcome to another fantastic episode of the Upgraded Life podcast. I'm super excited to bring to you my guest today. He is a mind coach and I'm a coach, so we'll have lots to share. Hopefully some differences that we can contrast and compare and do it in a civil manner. He has written a book called Clear Ahead. He has his own method of helping people called Control and he trains people in that method. We were just talking about giving a training just over the weekend and how that's been going. And he has an incredible TED talk. And that's how I found Tim Box. I found him through the YouTube algorithm. So as much as Social Dilemma wants to you know, put hate on social media, <laughs> um, the algorithm connected us and his message spoke to me uh, in such a clear way and spoke um, to my head and to my heart. And I just knew that I had to connect with Tim and I did. And here we are bringing you an episode of Upgraded Life with Tim Box, who is an anxiety expert. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, Nick. Really pleased to be on the podcast. Thank you. Awesome. So I'm selfish with these podcasts. Like <laughs> I, I interview people because I find them interesting. I want to know um, what they do and why they do it. And it's on my goal list to do my own TED Talk. So I'm super interested in how that came about for you. Yeah, that's a, cool. that's a bit of a story, that one. I <laughs> like you always always wanted to do a ted talk it was on my bucket list and um it's one of those things that when you feel like you've got something to say it's it's the it's the platform to say it on and i think i actually wanted to do a ted talk before i knew what i wanted to talk about and I, and that was the main thing for me it took me um a good three or more years once i decided to go for it to actually get it because what happened was i i sort of um I read a book called, I think it was called Talk Like Ted, yep. and it was by the guy who who started Ted. And, and I just, I, I really liked it. And I liked the examples of the talks that he gave that he thought were good talks. And I thought, yeah, you know what, I, I totally agree with you there. It really resonates with me. And so I'd spoken to friends for a while saying, I really want to do a Ted talk, you know, because I was, I was working in the field of hypnosis, hypnotherapy, helping people with their anxiety. And it was very much something that I felt I had a, an, you know, a different angle on maybe that, that was worth spreading. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was a friend that said, look, in my local town, they're doing a TEDx now. We, I know the lady who's just won the TEDx license and she's going to be doing an event every year. So I connected with her, a lady called Leo Batchelor, um, and, and we spoke and I, apl I applied to, be, to talk at the, at the TED talk and got turned down. 
um <laughs> and then so and i was like okay that's fine you know but maybe i didn't expect to, to get it the first time around and when i look back on it i looked at my video the other day my application video and i look at myself in that video i'm like oh yeah you don't really know what you want to say do you You're, you just want to say something and, and it felt like i wanted to talk about i do this rather than here's a great idea that, mm-hmm. I, that I want to share. So mm-hmm. I can see why it got turned down. Second year I applied, uh, I got turned down again um, because, again, I don't think it, the message had evolved correctly. But funny enough, my wife, Britt, got accepted for the talk because she is absolutely amazing and she has a, an incredible story herself of her her joint journey out the other side of her depression when she was younger. And um, if um, if you if you're looking look up the TEDx talk, the courage to continue by uh, she, by, by Britt Wyatt, I think she was listed under at the time. Um, and it's it's an amazing talk. But I got to hang out with her while she was going through the process of rehearsals and talk development with the organisers and things like that. And so I suddenly got to understand how I needed to present the message that I had. And then the third year I applied. And I think because of all the information that I had and the education I'd received in the process, I got the talk and um, yeah, and I got to do it. And I, I've got to tell you, if you want to do a TED talk, yeah, do it. It is one of the most amazing experiences you'll ever have. Not just the actual standing on the spot and talking to people and, and finally getting to deliver this message that you might have had for years wanting to tell people, but the whole process of working with the other speakers, with the people in charge, with the with the organizers of the event. And it just develops your message and defines it in a way you probably wouldn't do mm-hmm. if it wasn't for the event, you know? And so, and so, yeah, just absolutely amazing experience. Loved it to bits, you know? That's a great story. I had no idea about the, the back part of that. So th- thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I did. I it's did. Okay. It, was, it was quite a journey. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, but it's a, I mean, uh, it's a testament to, who you were and the work that you do and uh, gives you that much more credibility when you're, when you're working with clients, right. That you had to persevere. Yeah. Yeah, There's, it's definitely, I'll tell you the interesting thing about, about when you have a message that's kind of put out there by Ted, they're very specific about what they will allow you to talk about. Cause obviously they're putting their name on what you're saying mm-hmm. effe- effectively, aren't they? And they won't let you talk politics. They won't talk, let you talk religion and they won't let you talk pseudoscience. Um, and there's, a, there's a mm-hmm. vast array of what they regard as pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. So me as, as the hypnotist, the hypnotherapist, mm-hmm. I could very easily drift into what they regard to be pseudoscience. Right. So I had to steer clear of that. And even when the talk was delivered, and they submitted, uh, the organisers of the local TEDx submitted the talk to TED. TED put um, a kind of a disclaimer thing on it, a, a sort of a caveat thing, letting people know this wasn't medical advice, you know, and I think we we chatted briefly about the whole attitude towards the medical model of, with anxiety. And I, I had to speak about that, I think, because it was relevant to my message. But that was the thing that TED were very keen to say, this is not medical advice in, in that sense. So there was this whole other anxiety surrounding is it even going to get put up on the channel now that i've done the talk um but you know you know we we talk about mindset though i said to brit around the time if it doesn't go up i'll apply again next year i'll apply to other ted talk and i'll I'll redo it and i'll make sure i keep doing it until it gets put up and the message gets out because it's too important just to abandon because it's a difficult journey you know so yeah it was a (laughs) it was a whole thing yeah absolutely that's powerful have you have you spoken much about that or written about that 
what it was like to actually get there? Not the, not the whole the whole journey. I keep I, I have it in my you know you have certain notes to do that you want to put certain content out on social okay. media, and it is going to be one of my my vlogs on YouTube. It'll mm. be coming in the next month or so. But it's it's Love one it. of the things I'd like to talk about yeah. because it is very relevant to the nature of the message. Why? Um, the organisers of TED might not necessarily be completely comfortable endorsing sure. that message because sure. it is, you know, it, 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 it's that real weird paradox. TED want ideas that are new, but at the same time, they don't want to, you know, diverge too far from what's accepted, lest they go out on a limb that is uh, um, ungrounded, you know. And I think it was only because I had such a vast experience of using this model with clients sure. that they were willing to accept what I was talking about as not just the, the rantings of a, a crazy person, but actually somebody who was walking this walk with people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and therefore, it was almost like it was the results of my experiments, if you like, rather than just I've got an idea, I wonder what it's like, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Love it. And so the three things, what, what politics, religion, and pseudoscience. Science. That, so that's yeah. interesting because I've seen a lot of TED Talks and I kind of filter through some of those. Um, so it must be a very case-by-case -case type of determination around those things. Well, I really think it is because yeah. I'm the same as you. I've seen TED Talks and there's a bit of me thinking, well, how, did, how did that get through? You know, why is that on? You know what I mean? Because it feels like it's one of those taboos, yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah. sort of. Yeah, one of the things that, that we were discouraged from talking about was any sort of neuroscience, mm -hmm. which obviously when you're talking about the mind and our emotional responses and our mental well-being, there's a lot of neuroscientific research to back up what we do in terms of helping clients. Yeah. Uh, but if, if you go there because, and not because neuroscience is pseudoscience, but because most people that talk about neuroscience aren't neuroscientists. Yeah. So, so Ted are a little bit jumpy about that sort of stuff, lest you speak of what you don't know anything about you know it's like yeah. you, you drift outside your lane we they definitely want people talking about their own expertise mm -hmm. rather than drawing from other people's research or other people's expertise so maybe that's where yeah. they kind of allow people to drift into those areas when they have a really good reason to believe the idea they have based around it you know their yeah. experience rather than just going out on a limb kind of thing yeah, and I think that's that's probably exactly it, because I think about the ones that came to my mind, and it seemed like the person giving the talk, for example, that definitely turned political, tipped very political, but they were talking about their own experience of oppression and racism in, in the U.S., right? And so, but it was very yeah. much, this is my story, right? And this yeah, is, and uh, that, that's exactly it. I think, I think if the core idea that you're putting across comes very much from your personal journey. I think they're very, they're very open to accept right. that okay. because I think that's what, that's what we want to hear, isn't it? We want to hear that the personal journey, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I'm aware, you know, there's at least two videos or kind of that were yanked from Ted talks for, for being, um, anti-scientific method, anti-science. It's pretty mm -hmm. interesting. So you can, you can, mm -hmm. you can search those if you want the, the two, two Ted talks mm -hmm. that were yanked uh, for being anti-science. And, uh, so oh, I'm really? very, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're okay. by, and they're given by scientists, you know, <laughs> and so oh, wow. with, with PhDs and, you know, they were kind of, uh, mm -hmm. dismantling the scientific method as the end all be all. And oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it was pretty, pretty. I'd like to. I'd like to see that talk. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. There's probably a lot of value in that as well. That's that's the thing, isn't it? But 
I don't know. I, I think it's very it's very personal, though, in terms of what you want to convey. I think the reason I didn't get accepted a couple of years, definitely one of the years I didn't get accepted was because I was talking about stuff that didn't have scientific grounding. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, I was talking about hypnosis and hypnotherapy and I know there are TED talks about hypnosis Mm -hmm. um, but they tend to be more demonstrative this is I wonder what this is about rather than claiming things I think maybe I I went in there claiming you know because at the time you know a few years ago this is four or five years ago the way I was working was very much hypnosis is the answer Mm -hmm. rather than just hypnosis is a tool by which we deliver the answer if you know what I mean so I have a different standpoint on it now than I did at the time and maybe that's why um, the message was was a little bit more readily accepted by by that organization, you know. Yeah, and I've definitely read that book, Talk Like Ted. It was a it's a great book, and just made a lot of sense to me. And you know, I'll cling to the to this the talks and the speeches that were given over time that are you know part of U.S. history. You're in the U.K., but you know the Gettysburg Address, 14 minutes. You know JFK's yeah. inaugural speech, 14 minutes. Is something. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have a dream, but Martin Luther King about you know 16 minutes, something like that. Yeah. And yeah. that's the sweet spot well, there for. <laughs> this is it. It sounds it sounds like a random thing. Don't go over 18 minutes, but then you realize, oh no, actually there there is a bit of thinking behind it, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> And it's really easy to either do something that's too, uh, that's kind of too much of a skimming stone or to, to try and go on longer. It's really, honestly, it's the most, I do a lot of public speaking, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't do scripted word for word and then remember every word without teleprompter type public speaking. I will have a topic and it'll be like, it'll be more of a discussion, you know, like we're having here. Sure. I'll have a few bullet points and I'll talk around those bullet points and make the point that I want to make with Ted because it's timed because it's filmed because the message has to be approved before you can deliver it you have to script it out word for word and then remember it like a speech you know and it's um it's an interesting challenge uh because I don't normally work that way Mm -hmm. so yeah that was um that was a source of great anxiety as I was (laughs) heading out onto the spot yeah yeah (laughs) yeah perfect so Thanks for uh, indulging me on that. My personal um, interest in TED Talks and you having given one. So that was a lot of fun for me. Thanks for letting me uh, ask you about that. No problem. So in either your TED Talk or in different videos that I've taken in that you have given, you call yourself uh, an accidental anxiety expert. Tell me about that. Well, okay. So people say, why do you specialize in anxiety? And I think I'm, I'm, I'm going off the word expert, you know, cause I've, um, and only cause my dad said to me the other day, you can't call yourself an expert. Other people have to call you an expert. I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Actually dad. So I'm more of a, an anxiety specialist than expert, you know? So, um, but I think, yeah, it, it's very much a couple of reasons. First reason when I started out 10 years ago doing this, people didn't tend to come to me using the term anxiety. It wasn't like a, a thing people would sit down and say, I need to deal with my anxiety, because I don't think it was necessarily in, in the public vernacular at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't the language we were using. People might say, I'm worrying about stuff. I'm, I'm laying awake, tossing and turning. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm upset about certain things. Um, but they didn't just come in and say, it's my anxiety. Now, these days, more than half the people, even before I wrote the book about anxiety, even before I did the TED talk, more than half the people that were coming into my clinic to see me were saying, I need to sort my anxiety out. I need help with that. And I think, you know, some people describe it as the modern epidemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's quite, a, that's, 
fair enough, you know, because it tends to be what all people are dealing with um, and are seeking the answer to, um, probably because anxiety is such a common emotion that we all feel. And where life tends to be set up to create further anxiety these days, I think that's why we, we get into a spiral with it. And, and as much as we were saying how great it is that you and I can connect on the opposite side of the planet in just a moment, it's also the fact that we can communicate so readily is also a problem anxiety wise because you know when I was a kid if I was getting bullied at school at 3 30 the bell rang and I went home to the safety of my loving family you know if these days our bullies remain in our pockets at all times just for us right. to take out and engage with them again so we don't really get respite from the the struggles that we're having sure. plus we get all of our all the everyone's theories everyone's opinions everyone's negativity um and it just bombards us with stuff that could potentially make us feel a little bit anxious about mm. things so yeah I, I think that's why i've ended up a specialist in this area because it's what's been demanded of me from my client base mm-hmm. um and and then i think the second reason because i had my own journey with anxiety when i was younger um almost like i recognize it retrospectively interestingly enough it's not like i was i was struck i was oh my, my anxiety's you know tearing me up it was like when i look back yeah yeah I had it was it was anxiety I was dealing with as well, and just because mm-hmm. I didn't understand what I was going to call it at the time, sure. didn't make it any less real to me. So my journey there and my understanding of how I got the other side of it, I think, has helped shape where I where I come to with all of this in terms of the way I approach it and my attitude to what is actually going on and how we then get control of it. You know, perfect, love it. So. So let me let me try to take care of the expert dilemma that you have there, the the, the imposter syndrome around experts. So, <laughs> um, I'm I'm big on reading. In 2019, I read 87 books, either or listened, read or listened. I, I count them both. And oh. in the course of my reading, I came across the the claim that was made. Actually, it might have been Darren Hardy's book, The Compound Effect. Um, mm. But if you read if you read five books in any one discipline five books mm-hmm. in any one discipline, it automatically puts you in the top 10% of knowledge in that um, specific topic. Oh, really? That is yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. That, that yeah. helps out, doesn't it? When you yeah. think about it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, it's like, it's kind of sobering too, because, you know, I also believe that, you know, that the, I believe in teach that the market pays for three things, your knowledge and your skills and your connection. So if you don't have the knowledge, start mm. reading start listening, yeah. start, you know, yeah. uh, it's all yeah. right there at your fingertips via the internet. And so there's really n- not a whole lot of excuse and you don't need necessarily to go to college to get access to the professors, the experts, the books. That, you know, that's exactly the thing, isn't it? One of my mentors said to me a long time ago, you've really got no excuse for not knowing your stuff these days because it's all out there. And okay, there is a lot of misinformation out there as well, but when it comes to studying and, and you know, educating yourself, there's more opportunities than there's ever been. I totally okay. agree with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So mm-hmm. further on the expert journey for you, <laughs> um, how many people would you say that you've helped with anxiety uh, up to this point? Round oh numbers. God, that's a really good question. Um, I, would th- I would say, yeah, thousands. I think it's in the thousands rather than the hundreds, I think. I mean, one to one, I would I would say just, you know, in the, in the thousands mark. But I think also in terms of helping them workshops, talks, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of... Yeah, there's there's a lot of people I think that have um, heard my message now. Plus, you know, the, the TED talks out there now as well. So, yeah. and I get so many messages from that people saying 
that's changed my outlook on it or that's i mean people actually saying that's changed my life and i think that's amazing because Absolutely. it falls so far in line with the way i think things should be working you know that that i do a lot of people say to me how do i get what's the quickest way to get control of anxiety what's the best way to get control of it the answer is always educate yourself about it to the point where you're no longer scared of it mm -hmm. Because then it suddenly comes under control. Sure. And, and that's the thing. The fact that an 18-minute talk for people is like, right, that's the education I needed. That's the understanding I needed to stop this creating its own fear, its own anxiety. Um, and that's amazing for me. That, that's just, you know, it's, it blows my mind that I could stand on a stage in Folkestone in the south of England one day. And then, you know, over a year later, there are thousands of people saying how much they, they appreciate the message. You know, that's, that's like awesome. It. Have you had uh, clients refer other clients to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the main source of my business, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 All right. So uh, I'm Dr. Nick Sotelo, and I am hereby declaring you an expert in anxiety. <laughs> Brilliant. If I can just get a little uh, capture of the video of that moment, and then I can just... Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, 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 write you a, I'll write you a certificate for sure. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and my PhD is in counseling, right? Which, and I have an analogous training of, uh, as a psychologist. Uh, however, my training more tipped towards uh, training master's level clinicians to be um, mental health counselors. So it was more of a, how do you teach um, the next level of clinicians versus uh, psychologists get more training in uh, psychometric assessments. So pretty uh, education but i can't call myself a psychologist <laughs> yeah well it's funny a number of times people reflect will introduce me oh psychologist i'm like no <laughs> it's like yeah yeah um it's but it's amazing you can you get mislabeled quite easily these days because um yeah there's a lot of different different disciplines isn't there in terms Absolutely. of mental health and, and yeah. the support you can get and the sort of uh, the sort of professional that you might go to for that yeah Sure. So this isn't a TED talk and I'm the one that determines uh, what's appropriate content or not for this show. So let's dive into it, Tim. What is okay. anxiety? Okay. Anxiety is an emotion. It's, it's an emotional response that steers your conscious focus in the direction that, um, that your mind currently feels it needs to go mm. for whatever reason that might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that in the simplest terms, that's what I believe it is. Um, I know I know a lot of people will tell me um, anxiety is a disorder or an illness or, mm -hmm. or a condition that we can be afflicted with. But at its core, for me, it's one of our emotional responses in the mm -hmm. same way we have fear, uh, anger, excitement, you know, joy. Anxiety is one of the range of emotions that our mind will trigger for us in order to steer us in the right direction at any given time. Sure. Yeah, and I and I think that's that's where we we confuse it. I think when we we label it instantly as a disorder, as if it shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of the problem. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. Tim, do you differentiate between a feeling and an emotion? And if so, how do you do that? Oh, that's a really good. That's a really good question. I think I think our emotions create feelings. 
if that makes sense. I've not been asked that question before, Nick. So that's that's a real sort of completely out of the back pocket. Like, right, what the frick do I say now? Um, I think our emotions, sometimes people describe anxiety with a very visceral response. So they will have a tightness in the chest, a shortness of breath. They won't so much describe what they feel anxious about. Mm-hmm. They'll describe the physical response they're getting. You know, like people, when they go into that panic state, um, and that's what they believe anxiety is. Because I'll ask people, how do you know when you're anxious then? And they'll say, well, I feel it here or, you know, it's almost like they're they're physically aware of it before they actually pay attention to what they are concerning themselves with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And some people will be will be listening to this and saying, well, I don't know what I feel anxious about. It just it just comes on me is that that physical feeling. What that tends to indicate is the thing you're most anxious about now is your anxiety. So when we do that thing that we do, you know, several times every day where our mind gives us a little indicator or pay attention to that, remember to pay that bill, remember to go into that meeting at the right time, remember to get that work done. And it happens so fast that when we feel any response like that, our fear of the anxiety kicks in before we get to notice what we're anxious about, what what our mind is trying to steer us towards. And the thing is the alarm bell goes off about, oh, no, I'm feeling anxious again. And that creates its own anxiety response. It's the fear of the fear, if you like. So I think our feeling is sometimes how we recognize anxiety shouting rather than whispering at us. But the emotion itself is kind of, um, yeah, it's the reason. It's mm-hmm. like, why, what, what do I need to pay attention to right now? You know, in the TED Talk, I use the sort of somewhat reductive, somewhat flippant example of Friday morning, I get anxious about, you know, I've got to take the bins out. It's, it's dustbin day, you know. And it's not like it's not like crippling anxiety, but it's like my mind goes, oh, take the bins out. And if I don't say it, Brit says it. So, you know, it's like <laughs> I, I get a reminder to take the bins out. But the, real the point anxiety. is that it's if I, if I had an issue with anxiety where – Feeling anxiety means, oh, there's my illness flaring up again, or it's wrong that I should feel anxious, Mm -hmm. then I would actually be dreading Friday mornings because I'd be thinking, oh, no, I'm going to wake up anxious again, aren't I, because of the the dustbins. And before anyone like comments or anything, yeah, I should take them out Thursday night. I know that's the answer. But yeah, (laughs) the the point being is that as long as anxiety is okay to feel, we don't have to feel anxious about the prospect of feeling it. Okay, and so that that's the difference. I think our our visceral responses are almost where we go when we stop just listening to what we're actually anxious about. Maybe I don't know. Sure. Yeah, if that makes excellent. Sense. Sound like an expert to me. <laughs> so you're right. It probably wasn't a fair question. Probably should have prompted you for that ahead of time. So I'm one of those folks that talks about the difference between an emotion and a feeling. And, you know, I teach that to, I taught graduate school for the better part of a decade. So I would teach that to my students and it was the way that it was taught to me. And I'm right on board with that idea that anxiety is a part of the human experience and it serves a purpose and we ought not be on this quest to eradicate, you know, anxiety uh, from our lives. It's there for a purpose. So, feeling versus emotion. And again, I'm not telling you that you have to accept this, but I want to explain it. It's something that I often uh, um, find myself talking about, especially around um, things like anxiety, things like depression, helping people uh, resolve their anger. That's one of the things that I have out there is anger resolution versus anger management. And that's a whole nother, that's, that's my Ted talk. Right. Yeah. uh, yeah, Right. Um, so I, you know, I was taught and what I teach is there's four primary feelings. It's mad, sad, glad, and afraid. 
mad, sad, glad, and afraid versus all of this stuff that's out there, which gets good stuff. I don't want to discredit it. I almost incorporated it into my, my doctoral study uh, around emotional intelligence, right? But we're, we've kind of, you know, exploded the topic beyond what, where I think it's useful anymore, you know, because mm-hmm. now we have this list of 1000 emotions and which emotion are you feeling? And, ah, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just not mad, sad, glad, and afraid. Let's keep it simple. Yeah. Yeah. And when we have that experience, when we have one of those feelings, right, because something yeah. happens in our environment, it's dustbin day, we do mm-hmm. have that uh, visceral response, right? Yes. And then when that's paired with our thoughts, when that's paired, when that's filtered through our thoughts, when mm-hmm. it is filtered through our mindset, our beliefs, mm-hmm. the emotion comes um, as a product of that combination. So, right. Feelings plus thoughts equal uh, emotions in my book, in the, in the way that I look at it. And part of that is, is to make, uh, is to help people integrate the primary feeling states, mad, sad, okay. glad, and afraid. Hmm. Those are things that are there that, it, that keep us alive, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. yeah so exactly. Yeah. The, and the more that we can learn to be aware of those, to be integrated with mm-hmm. those things, the better off we're going to be in terms of our overall human experience. But for example, when we say it's not okay to be mad, well, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> I think there's yeah. there's lots of scenarios where um, somebody becoming mad was is primal. It's, ex, it's instinctive. It's survivalistic. And that's, it's yeah. not uh, by itself, a, a negative or mm-hmm. um, thing that ought to be avoided. Now, what what we do in response to being mad, that's a whole different topic. So, yeah, that's yeah. my take on the difference between feelings and emotions. I, you know, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think we have to understand that every emotion that is triggered is there for a purpose. It has it has a, a purpose behind it. And and I think we make the mistake of thinking that some of our emotional responses are just like unwanted side effects of something or other. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and we're not as a result, we're not listening to it. We're not trying to understand why do I feel this way we're just trying to push it away as a negative emotion that we're not really allowed to feel or else it means x or y about our our wellness you know and I think a lot of people see they'll they'll say to me well I am listening to my I'm very well aware of it you know but there's a difference between being aware that there's a bit shouting at you and listening to what it's saying Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's that's the difference that people need to realize is that all the time they're feeling anxious and saying, oh, no, 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 ignore it, distract myself, go away from, you know, try and push it away, try and put a lid on it. It's like when we try and put a lid on anger, not, you know, putting a lid on something you feel, it it never leads anywhere positive. It never leads to a good place because there's a bit of you trying to get heard. And if you deliberately ignore it, it's going to shout louder and louder until it finally gets heard. And that's where most people sit with their anxiety is that they've got these parts of them having to scream at them to even get noticed. And now the thing they're screaming most at is why are we all screaming in here? What's going on? What does this mean? Is there something wrong with me? And it just, it just, like you say, it just leads somewhere very bad. Um, And I think we should, if only we were taught from an early age, emotions have meanings. They're they're there for a reason and we need to pay attention to them. I, I think we were taught. I think we just forgot. Right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you look at the, you know, the what really goes on early on in our in our school systems, right? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's all about learning how to play nice in the sandbox, so to speak, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, but somewhere along the way, we we forget those things, right? And we well, that's it. Somewhere along the way, we got to adulthood, <laughs> and we started to regard some of the ways we feel 
as meaning we've we're dysfunctional now right. we've gone wrong in some way right. so yeah it's like and I, yeah, I think you're right you know we tell our kids to you know feel and be in the moment and enjoy you know and take part and all that sort of thing but then at some point if you feel a certain way too much we're going to tell you all oh, no hang on that's that's wrong you know i'll get people ringing me up and saying can you can you see my child they're, they're having anxiety about their upcoming exams i'm like well yeah there's exams coming up. I think, I think that's healthy, isn't it? I would, I would, I would consider it weird. You need to worry when they don't give a shit about their exams coming up because they're probably not going to try and do, you know, do the best for themselves there. And I think if they're feeling anxious about it, it's like, yeah, I get that you're feeling anxious, but do your best. We'll love you all the same, and I'm sure you're going to smash it. You know, we believe in you. That that's the answer there. Not let's go and take him to the therapist so that he can deal with his anxiety about his exams. You know, right. it's it's I don't know. Sometimes I think. We, we we move a bit fast mm-hmm. to to our you know our mental health professional i think you know not that i'm trying to do either of us out of business but I, I was listening to another podcast recently and um the the person being interviewed kept saying so if you're experiencing this sort of thing yeah then you yeah you might want to go and see somebody and it's like well hang on i mean let's let's not instantly frame many of our human a normal human healthy experiences as a sign of disorder or or malfunction or illness because then we're just going to have the whole of the well we're going to end up what we've got which is a large amount of the populace thinking they have an emotional problem rather than realizing they have to just kind of unlearn some stuff that's got them in a bad place and then change their perspective on things you know yeah and it's actually a, a layer beyond that. You said emotional problem. I, I would be okay with that, right? But people mm-hmm. people are convinced that they have a medical disorder and a mental yeah. illness. That that's where the problem is. Absolutely, yeah. And and also the problem is that there's so many people. I don't know. It's like when you know nothing, you say just pull yourself together. When you know something, then you say, oh, this is real. Yeah, but most people stop there. When you know more than that, you're like, okay, it's real, but you can change it. And this is this is the thing. Most people stop, okay, it's real, I am ill. And that's as far as they go. Yeah. They never get to the point of challenging their mind to recreate the responses in a different way or learn the new things because I thought it was nothing, now I realize it's something. And we feel that's the end of our journey of education when really, the and we can get here, the people that are here, saying you can change this, often get mistaken for the people that are here saying, pull yourself together, this isn't real, yeah? And that's the danger that we have to sound more like who we are, like our understanding, rather than like these people, because very quickly the people here will call these people these people. Right. Just doing a yeah. fucking puppet show now, but you know what I mean. Like that kind of thing. I, yeah. That's the danger: is yeah. that people need to hear something more positive than "oh, you can change it, though." You know that kind of thing. It needs to be mm-hmm. slightly more from a position of experience and education. I think you know. Yeah. Well, in your in your left hand, your left hand puppet there for. Um, I haven't done much <laughs> on on these on uh, YouTube posting uh, the whole videos, but at some point in time, that might be part of the plan here for the upgraded life. But uh, he mm-hmm. was using his left hand to show, you know, these people saying, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That, that's the suppression um, message, right? Just, um, yeah, if, if you if you have anxiety, I don't want to hear about it. Just just take care of it. You know, just get on with your life. Um, yeah. Quit, you know, and we've you're right and we can be we can be lumped together in that where because what we're trying to say and i'm going to put us in the same box is um you know that pill may not be the ultimate answer for you um yeah we we know your self-medicating isn't working right Mm. 
and then people hear that as okay well great well what am i supposed to do now right and that's where we have to have an answer for that right we can't just say yeah, that that's exactly it and yeah and i apologize i've just realized that no one else can see what's going on <laughs> like, in my memes <laughs> the rest of the talk i shall do by the art of mime and right. then like um no but yeah I, that, that's exactly it the the medication that we get that's i mean, that's the and here's the thing. So I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a doctor. So I, I can't talk about medication like I understand medication, like a medical professional would. But this is kind of my point is that I help people get over anxiety without treating it like a medical issue. And that's that's the key. And we I talk about that in the TED talk, as, yes. as you know. And it's it's the thing that I was most nervous about putting in. And I was encouraged to include that part of the talk by the, the organizers and my fellow speakers, because they said, no, I think this is the important message here is that, you know, the, I, I say the line that a medical solution to a non-medical problem won't solve that problem. Yeah. And, and this is the difficulty that some people have accepting is mm -hmm. what if anxiety isn't a medical problem? Yeah. What if it's an emotional um, confusion, you know, because we say disorder and, you know, what? I'm, I'm I'm not comfortable with the term anxiety disorder, mm -hmm. but I do know the definition of disorder is a state of confusion. And that does kind of describe when our when our anxiety response has got confused and, and has become inappropriate for the situation that we're currently in. So I'm kind of OK to call it that, provided we can understand that a disorder does not mean it's a medical condition that you're now locked into or that you now must tolerate or manage for the rest of your life. Sure. There is an option here to shift the way you see the world and as a result, shift your emotional responses to it, you know? Absolutely. I want to, I want to dive into that with you, Tim, but I also want to kind of link back to a couple things that you said a little bit ago that are, you know, very analogous to, to my understanding. So again, what I teach people is anxiety becomes a problem when you start having anxiety about your anxiety, right? That's yeah, what makes it in, in my world pathological when you start having yes. anxiety about your anxiety. Yeah. I would, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, man, I'm going to lose the other, the other thing that you said uh, earlier, but that's okay. Um, okay. Not a problem. Well, the thing, the thing I would say to expand on, on that idea is that when, when we suffer a lot of anxiety over a long period of time, especially if we get diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, so now that's become our malady, then we'll do this thing of waking up in the morning and doing little self-scans. How anxious do I feel as I wake up this morning? You know, Because we want to check, am I going to have a good day or a bad day? Because mm -hmm. if I feel anxious this morning, I know I'm going to have a bad day and things like that. Right. And of course, checking for how anxious you feel, it's a very anxious thing to do. And it, it creates the anxiety that you fear. And, and that's the problem there is that we're not now anxious about that meeting. Yeah, we might be a little bit anxious about it. But the problem is, as soon as we're a little bit anxious about it, then instead of saying, of course, I'm anxious, I've got that meeting coming up, we say, oh, no, my anxiety is flaring up today. My, my illness is, is having a bad day and things like that. You know, I used to run anxiety workshops what a bad idea that was. Nobody ever showed up. They'd book in and then they'd feel too anxious to come along to the workshop. And I'd get texts from people saying, wouldn't you know it, Tim? So sorry, my anxiety's flared up today. As if, as if it's just this random thing that hits us at any moment. But of course they feel anxious. They're going to a place they've never been before to meet some people they've never met before and talk about the thing they fear the most about them. Yeah, yeah of course you could feel anxious. 
Exactly. You know what? If imagine if they didn't feel it, they wouldn't have a problem. The only people that would turn up are the people that don't have anxiety problems. But and, and so this is the thing. It's like or that's their, okay. You know, their that's wives human. or their partners show up and their moms show up so they can learn. <laughs> yeah, that's the, yeah, yeah. To fix their people, right? But honestly, and, and I think I think that's the. You're absolutely right. It becomes what we might recognise as disordered you know, properly disordered when anxiety is the thing we're the most anxious about. Right. And and this is the thing, we can say that, but how are we going to shift that then? What's the understanding that it doesn't have to be the thing you're the most anxious about? And the, the for me, the understanding I want my clients to realize is that feeling anxious doesn't mean you're ill. Yeah, that that's a that's a healthy response. Yeah. We we kind of think I'm in this situation doing this thing and now I'm panicking. That shouldn't happen. That means there's something malfunctioning about my brain. So yeah. I'm sitting in a coffee shop chatting with my friend and I have a panic attack. Now that means my brain's malfunctioned. It's like my brain's gone two plus two equals five. Yeah. And and the mistake thing in there is that your mind can't add up two plus two. But of course, in reality, what's going on is a bit of your mind thinks one of these twos is a three. That's why it's come up with five. We just got to work out which of these twos which one of the things that your mind thinks is a three is actually a two. So, you know, we might say, I'm drinking a coffee, I'm chatting with my friend, and now I'm having a panic attack. That doesn't add up. But in reality, I'm drinking a coffee, which actually increases my heart rate. It's got mm -hmm. caffeine in it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not the coffee that causes the panic attack. It's the fact that in the past, you've had a panic attack. So now when your heart rate increases, a bit of your mind says, hang on, is that a panic attack on its way? Because when we had a panic attack, it felt like we were dying. So, any time that I now may think I might be a mere seconds away from a life-threatening incident, what's the healthy response to that? I'm going to go into panic because that's what human beings do when they're just mere moments away from something that might challenge their existence. The, the mistake there is the idea that a panic attack is going to kill me. It's just your mind perceived that it, it felt like it was. You know, there's no no death certificates have cause of death panic attack on them. Right. It doesn't happen yet. Yeah. But of course, we perceived it as life threatening. So now when our body does that stuff that it does freaking every day, regulates itself with increased heart rate, increased breathing, feeling a bit lightheaded, a bit dizzy. I'm a bit, you know, what's that? I've got chest pains. Am I, is it indigestion? Is it I'm dying? That sort of thing. Your body does this all the time, but we don't notice it because it doesn't matter. It's not important until we've had a panic attack. Now we're scanning for it. There's a bit of us in the back of our mind, a little guy in there that says, hang on, that's not right. My heart rate's faster than it should be. Does this mean we're going to have that life-threatening incident again? And as a result, we go into panic because that's the appropriate response to a life-threatening incident. You know, So it's not like your mind's broken. It can't add up. It just thinks this thing is something to fear on a, on a huge visceral, you know, life altering level. And that's, that's what the education needs to come to that part of your mind that it isn't. And then what tends to happen doesn't happen anymore. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I just quickly refer to a, a client that I had a few years ago. She was having two or three panic attacks a day. We did some work in one session. She came back to another session a couple of weeks later um, she said, I haven't had any panic attacks. I was like, amazing. You must feel absolutely awesome. She said, yeah, I do. There was only one incident, in fact, when I felt like I was going to have a panic attack. And I said, okay, when was that? And she said, well, I was driving on the motorway and I just felt a little bit weird. She couldn't even put a finger on how she felt, whether it was her heart, whether it was her chest, whether it was lightheadedness. I just felt weird. I pulled over to the side of the road and her boyfriend said, do you need me to drive us home? Are you okay? Because obviously he knew of her history of panic attacks. She said, no, no, I'm just going to have a panic attack. But then once it's done, we'll, we'll carry on to the shops. 
because now she knew panic attacks weren't deadly. Right. And of course, he didn't have a panic attack because there was no part of her mind fearing this response. Now yeah. she's, she viewed it like the roller coaster I'd ideally not like to be on. You know that one that you've been on where you're like, I'd really like to have gotten off halfway around that thing, but I couldn't, you know. But we know we're going to be alive at the end of it. So as soon as we understand this might be unpleasant, but it won't kill us, then maybe the part of our mind that's triggering us to go into panic and creating that effect don't have to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's a powerful concept. I, um, it's what Dr. Uh, Daniel Siegel calls, you know, naming it to tame it, that if we can name it and we can describe mm-hmm. it, we can, we can observe it, then it probably doesn't yeah. have the power over us that we think that it does or that we give it, we grant it the power. That's it. Understand it to the degree where it's no longer scary, where it no longer scares us. That's that's the point of it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And I love your I love your metaphor um, that you use, but I'm going to um, detour for a second and then we'll come back to your metaphor that you use to explain the mind and, and how it all works. And yeah. but we're going to detour back just so I can give. Uh, the listeners, just a little bit of a glimpse, and maybe Tim, this might be um, new material for you. But um, when we talk about mental illness or disorders, and we talk about um, at least what's used in the U.S., I believe the U.K. is using it, but the you know the DSM, you know the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for um, Mental Illness, right? The DSM, that's the Bible for. Uh, yeah criteria and diagnosing and billing insurance. Yeah. But people need to understand is that is not a causal diagnosis. Hmm. It is a categorical diagnosis or menu diagnosis. So what's the difference? If you fall and hurt your arm, right? As you're taking the dust bins out and you trip on the curb, right? And you hit your arm and it's really sore and maybe it starts to swell. Well, you can present to the emergency room and they can look at it and be like, man, you might've broke your arm. And yeah. so they confirm that by giving you an x-ray. So they put your arm in the machine take a picture of it. And they say, yep, that arm is broken yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we can diagnose that. And yeah. with that diagnosis, we know pretty much exactly how the barring surgery, if you need surgery in a different realm, but we know how to fix it, yeah. right? We're going to cast it. Yeah. It's, the cast is going to be on for six to eight weeks. When you take the cast off, your arm's going to be a little bit weaker. You're going to have to do, you know, three or four weeks of physical therapy. But mm. when it's done, guess what? Your arm will actually be stronger than what it was before because the break will never break there again. All that kind of stuff that we tell people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not how mental health um, diagnosis works. No, not at all. And so you you look at the criteria for anxiety. I don't have it right in front of me. I could probably get my DSM and get it down. I usually do this with depression. That's why I have those kind of more in my head uh, to rattle off. But the mental health diagnosis will be, it'll say something like this, you know, it'll describe it and it'll say, you know, um, person must have experienced at least three of these in the previous six months or five yeah. weeks or whatever it is. And so you got to yeah. pick three out of like nine criteria. Why is that? Mm. Why, why, why do we have, why can't we pick four? Why is there, why is there not only one? Um, why is it not all of these criteria? Mm. And the reason mm. is, is that there's no consensus on this. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so they literally put the experts in a room and they say, well, folks, ladies and gentlemen, we have to come up with a a diagnosis and we're going to call it anxiety, general anxiety disorder, GAD. And so what does that look like? Well, I think it looks like this. Well, I think it looks like this. Right. And, and they literally sit in this room until they can all be like, okay, it's almost like giving a, uh, a jury verdict. Okay. I've had enough. Okay. I will concede that, you know, the fear of purple is part of anxiety. Okay. Let's get me out of here. And that's, you know, we want to say it's science. Right. And we want to say that this has been research based and all that kind of stuff. I'm telling you that is how those processes work. And then we have the criteria pick three out of these nine. It's a, yeah. category menu approach to um, diagnosing is not a causal approach yeah 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 well this is I'm, i've been saying this to people for ages about you know you you'll go in and as you say if it's a medical problem they'll do they'll say it looks like this so we'll do some tests check that it is this and then we'll give you the appropriate treatment for this mm-hmm. when you go in with anxiety or depression it's like okay, it looks like this. So we'll give you some medication for it, assuming that it is. And it's not like they can go and run some tests for you just to confirm that, oh, it's generalized anxiety, not social anxiety or, you know, and, and it's like, and, and I spoke to a friend of mine who was diagnosed bipolar, you know, and she, I said, what, what did you go through to get diagnosed with bipolar? And she was like, well, they just asked me to monitor my moods over a, seri- a period of two weeks. Yeah. And it's like, that doesn't, uh, you know, it's kind—it's of, a little bit reductive of your human experience in terms of what you've been through and where you are Absolutely. now and how you've ended up in this mm-hmm. place. Um, I don't know, and it's—it's it's, you know, we could we could drift onto the whole depression talk here, but I know that's not really what we're here to do. But that <laughs> idea that something bad happens to you and you feel depressed, and if you don't overcome that and get past that quick enough, we're going to diagnose you as clinically depressed. We're yeah. now going to tell you you're ill for feeling bad about the bad thing that happened. You know, right. and and it's like. Like that it just seems I know it seems misplaced, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, there was a big uproar when the DSM five included grief beyond I think six months as mm-hmm. something that was diagnosable, that was pathological. That if you had an experience in your life, lost a child or loved one or whatever it was, and you were still mm-hmm. experiencing some grief or sadness past six months, well, then um, that was determined to be pathological. There was a big mm-hmm. uproar and, and yeah. pushback around uh, how, how did this make it into the DSM and what are we doing? What, like you said, we're trying to, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, reduce the human experience right and, and yeah it isn't it isn't just i mean i know i know that you know you can you can trace chemicals and all this sort of thing you know the the idea that depression is a chemical imbalance all that kind of thing but it, it kind of it ignores occam's razor a little bit in terms of what's the simplest what seems to be the obvious explanation here you know i've asked every single client i've ever seen for the last 10 or 12 years have you ever suffered with depression yeah, and, and they've given me an answer. And if they've given me, you know, more than 50% probably have said yes to that, and you know, roughly speaking, rough figures. And then we ask, okay, what was the cause of it? You know, we go a little bit further. It takes us about 30 seconds to find out why they went through a period of depression. And it's never, oh, because I had a chemical imbalance. It's because this happened, or I went through this, or I was raised in this environment. And we can easily point a much more likely suspect as to what's caused that than, oh, you must have something wrong with your brain. You know, it, there's, there's always a much more, um, a, a much more straightforward and obvious reason. You know, it, I think it really 
devalues our human experiences and the traumas that we go through on our journey through life just to say, oh, yes, sorry, but there's something wrong with you for feeling bad right now. And and also it completely misunderstands the nature of a traumatic experience and how it can stay with us and kind of just be perpetuated and repeated in our mind over and over again. There's, you know, most of the work I think, you know, probably you and I do is, is dealing with learning experiences and enabling people to not have to puzzle that anymore, not have to try and work out where I compartmentalize that in my brain and that, that kind of thing, you know? So, yeah, I, I think we are very much in agreement on this sort of stuff, aren't we? Sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I am a doctor, but I'm not a medical doctor. <laughs> and uh, so take that for what it is, but I've seen lots of people um, treated lots of people uh, in my work in corrections. Uh, I work closely with prescribers. So I see all kinds of medication um, being prescribed. I see the impact and the effects of medication. I've seen it over the course of a couple decades. So I've seen yeah. some um, changes and, you know, how medications are being used and whatnot. Um, but there is a, a gentleman named a researcher named Irvin Hirsch, and he wrote. Um, uh, he's done a lot of research around the placebo effect and yes, how that I is. Know. I've, I've been cursed. Yeah, he's, yeah, uh, he's got the, the Empress the Empress New Drug. Was Empress New Drugs. Yeah, absolutely. He has yeah, a great yeah. TED talk as well. But the reason why I'm going to bring that up is, and I'm just going to go right after it is, you know, our best research on serotonin, right? For SSRIs, your 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 Zoloft, yeah. your Paxils. Um, Prozac's comes from lobsters. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so when we talk about, um, oh, you're, you know, I was just talking to a gentleman the other day who says um, that he, he believes he's been diagnosed with a brain that doesn't produce enough serotonin. Mm. Uh, well, did, did, how did they, did they do a spinal tap? Like, how did they know that? Mm -hmm. Like, how, how do they know that your brain um, mm -hmm. is not creating enough serotonin? And I, cause I've never heard of, of a serotonin draw, you know, from a, from a neurotransmitter to actually analyze, <laughs> yeah. right. And there's no baseline for mm -hmm. what is normal amounts of serotonin, right. There, there yeah. isn't. So when mm -hmm. we talk about these things as, oh, depression is caused by a chemical imbalance and it's caused mm -hmm. uh, because you, you, your serotonin doesn't stay uh, around in your brain in a bioavailable state long enough. And so here's a pill, here's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and yeah, that yeah. will allow your brain to have more available serotonin. That sounds good. There's literally zero research to support that that's how that works. We got research mm -hmm. from lobsters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. Well, yeah, I know, and that does sound um, that does sound mental, doesn't it? It's like like a really bad story or something, isn't it? That that's right. how they decided to think of it. But but it's like I mean, I'll see people that are struggling with their sleep, and they'll be on melatonin boosters, you know. To, to and the thing is, it doesn't matter how how much you know how little melatonin you produce to put you to sleep at night. It's never the low melatonin that's the problem. It's always the excess of cortisol. It's always whatever your mind is pondering, whatever's going on, whatever the emotional turmoil is that when you try to go to sleep, there's something else going on up here. So it, it's almost like trying to, I don't know, trying to patch over the stuff that's going on and try and hide it and put it, tuck it under the rug when it's like, well, just do get done the stuff that stops you producing so much cortisol so that you just, you go to sleep yeah. naturally, you know? Yeah. And it's just, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, it upsets me. I say it upsets me. It doesn't keep me awake at night, but you know, it, it sort of alarms me a little bit that the medical profession seems to completely um, disregard 
the causes of these chemicals that we're referring to yeah. you know so so serotonin you know we produce that when we laugh when we smile when we hug each other right. you know if you right. go through something when that stops dance. you doing that yeah. guess what your serotonin production will will be inhibited because mm -hmm. you're doing you're doing less smiling and laughing and, and interacting with people so that's naturally what would would cause that it doesn't mean your brain's not functioning anymore it just means something in your life the state of your life right now is you're no longer engaging in the things that naturally produce all the feel-good stuff yeah. you know and, and i don't again i'm not trying to reduce down clinical depression with i'll oh, just go and have a laugh you know but mm -hmm. but it needs to be understood that we do actually have uh input on how much of this chemical our brain produces right. we're not purely victims of our brain chemistry at this moment because in some way something about our journey in life has created this particular brand of, of brain chemistry yeah. that we've got going on at the moment yeah. and if we actually start to get active and, and proactive in doing different things you know I mean, we're going to come on to the, the whole metaphor that I use in, in a minute, but the idea that if we accept our diagnosis of clinical depression or anxiety disorder, the parts of our mind that would naturally evolve past that at times in our life will no longer be trying to because they don't regard the possibility mm -hmm. of operating outside the model of what we understand our depression or anxiety to be. You know, we talk about my journey with anxiety. You know, I didn't do anything to overcome that. Yeah, I didn't actually say, right, I'm going to eat the right thing because I'm going to go and do the right things and hang out with different people. I just made sure that anything I recognized inhibited my evolution, I stopped doing. Okay, because nobody told me I had an anxiety disorder. So I never believed I was mm -hmm. stuck with this. Mm -hmm. I always assumed, I think I'll naturally get over this social inhibition, this anxiety, I'll naturally get over that response. I mean, I might, I might stop beating myself up so much, I might not, I might stop putting myself down, because that's, that's going to help me naturally evolve and, and grow and, and learn all the things I need to learn and become a better version of me. But it wasn't like I said, I'm going to take this pill, or I'm going to do this breathing exercise. I simply started to do the things that I felt would would help me naturally evolve rather than inhibit it. And I think a lot of the stuff that people do, like beating themselves up and restricting themselves, accepting their diagnoses, it is the stuff they actively inhibit their growth with, these, these sorts of beliefs, you mm -hmm. know. You know, you, you talk about um you know mindset what is mindset it's it's our outlook based on all the assumptions that we have from our belief system mm -hmm. yeah and and if we stop assuming this isn't available or this is the way i have to go who knows what could suddenly become available to us you know so. absolutely so so go there mindset mindset for you is what well, it's, it's, um, this, this, I, I like this question. It's really, <laughs> so I Googled it. So I, you know, decided I've got Wikipedia up. You know? yeah. <laughs> no, look, my, mindset for me, I think it is, it is how you look at your given situation or yourself that is, is structured around your existing belief systems. Yeah. And this is why I think we upgrade our mindset by re-educating our current belief systems. Mm -hmm. um, the example I use. Yeah. So when we used to think the earth was flat, I know some people still do, but let's right. ignore that for a minute. Yeah. Um, uh, we used to. So sailors, if they had to sail into uncharted waters, would have a genuine fear of falling off the edge of the earth. They might reach the edge of the disc, you know. Um, right. But then, of course, we don't have that fear anymore because sailors learn, oh, the earth's round. And if I keep going, I end up back where I started. Yeah. So they didn't. And it's not because 
they took the right pills or lived the right life, that they don't fear that anymore. It's because they now understand the world better than they did when they had that fear. And that's why I think getting control of anxiety is about understanding it, Mm -hmm. because then we don't have to fear it anymore. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we stop fearing it, it stops having any power to trigger unwanted responses. So I think mindset to circle back round is how we look at the world according to our current beliefs and our current assumptions. Love it. Yeah. And the way that I would run with that is your beliefs are there for a reason. You know, you had help to get there and whatever those beliefs are, we just need to add to them. Right. It's not, you know, we got to, it's that constant learning, growth and development, adding to it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that I answer that question, I haven't really done this yet. Maybe you got to save it for a whole uh, episode is it's a set of minds. Mindset is a set of minds. So I look at it as a toolbox, quite literally. And, you know, you, you open up the lid and in there are these tools that you have. And, you know, Mm -hmm. this tool's for this and this tool's for that. And when I got to use this much pressure and force, but then when you come up on a problem when you look in your toolbox hmm. and you don't have a tool for it maybe you don't know there is a tool for it so then you start trying to make things fit or you think well that's not a problem because i don't have a tool so if i don't have a tool then that can't be a problem and then this thing keeps spinning in your life right and yeah. so uh, the, the the goal there is you know look at what you have available to you how is that working or not and then yeah. add to it right? Start adding to yeah. your assumptions, start adding to your belief systems, right? Yeah. So I, I appreciate you Googling that and, and having a, a great answer for me. So, well, I think I'd tell you what, though, I think it's so somebody once told me, someone who knows about brains, that there was something like 40 quadrillion active synaptic connections in a healthy human brain, which is right. it's, that's like 40 with 15 zeros, 15 zeros, mental. Um, and, and they're constantly reconnecting and reconfiguring as we input information into our computer into our mind so and that's done via our senses so when you think about it unless we were put into sensory deprivation from (laughs) from now we're going to keep learning every moment of every day and and that's going to be how we evolve according to what the world throws at us yeah and i guess all that all that i'm an advocate for is saying well maybe let me get involved in deciding how I evolve over the next few years, rather than just letting the world decide for me as it otherwise will. And this is why I think when people talk about mindset and taking control of their mindset, it's about challenging the things, the beliefs that hold you back and saying, right, what is that true? Because if it isn't true, wouldn't life be a lot easier? Because a lot of the things we just assume, we assume them because they've been true in our lives for years, maybe since we were a child, you know, when when this particular truth and this particular uh, emotional strategy protected the helpless child. But what about this adult that we've become, this better experienced version of us? Does it need that protection? Is this now the best strategy? If we question the assumptions, we can get places, you know, we, we can we can update to what's appropriate now. I love the fact that your podcast is called The Upgraded Life, because when I work with clients, I'm not like there's something wrong with you. I'm like, right, how do you want to upgrade? You know, you're, you're awesome, but you, you're not beyond upgrades because the upgrades never end, do they? You know, right. we never get to perfect state. Mm-hmm. So let's keep going, you know? Yeah. Thanks for that. So you like to use the boat and being the captain of your ship as the way that you explain how we work yeah. as in our minds. 
Yes, the ship. Yeah. Okay. So this is my uh, this is my patented analogy, <laughs> Not patented, expert analogy um, of how of how I view the mind. This is so you said the phrase "keep it simple" earlier. This is what I live and work by. Keep it simple. A lot of our problems come from overcomplicating things. And when clients come to see me, I try and keep it as simple as possible. So the analogy I use: um, if you think of your mind like a ship, every ship has a captain and a crew. In this analogy, the captain is your conscious, logical, rational part of you, the part that knows where you're going, why you're going there, how you're going to get there. Um, but unfortunately, the part of your mind that has its hands and all the things that steer and sail your ship, that's the crew and that's your subconscious. OK, now your crew steer the ship by triggering emotions. So if we perceive danger, a crew member will trigger fear, we'll feel discomfort and we'll move away from the danger to feel comfortable again. If somebody wrongs us, we might feel anger and we'll feel inspired to take action to right the wrong. So all of these emotions are triggered for our crew saying, Captain, pay attention to that. This needs to change here. This needs to do this. And this is how I, how I frame anxiety. It's a member of your crew saying, pay attention to this thing now above all other things. This is the most important thing, yeah? So your crew are trying to draw your conscious attention to something and you might be resisting it, but it keeps going back there, that kind of thing. And the thing that we fail to realize in this analogy is that, yeah, your crew gets shit wrong all the time, okay? And that's okay because they're still learning, yeah? It's like when, when we was a kid, we didn't have a captain on board. We didn't have the logical conscious version of us. We were just emotional and in the moment responding, trying to keep the ship afloat. And we learned loads of strategies, loads of things about the world. Some of them don't apply anymore. Some of them were never true. We just misunderstood the situation. All we're really looking to do is liaise with our crew in a way that enables each crew member to grow, learn, upgrade its responses, change its role to suit this current situation. And if we can do that, will probably be plain sailing as best as it can be in this uh, strange world that we live in. Yeah. So that's, so that's what I'm always looking to do. I'm looking to find the crew member doing the thing you don't like, give it the opportunity to do the thing that you'd prefer. Mm -hmm. really. And then you talked about, and this is in this Ted talk. That's how I know <laughs> uh, um, that when the captain doesn't pay attention to the crew, what happens next? The crew may well have to shout louder. Yeah. Yeah, mutiny, so um, right? <laughs> that's it. So you got you got something that's. I'll tell you what seems to happen. The people that I see that are suffering long term anxiety and it's just escalating, and now they've no idea what they're anxious about anymore. They've had a time in their life when there's been something that's been sort of ongoing. So it might be a health situation. It might be a job they didn't like. It might be uncertainty around a certain issue. Something they can't directly do something about right now. And the crew member saying we need to change this situation. We don't like it. You know, so people that are in, in lockdown at the moment, they don't like the fact that they've got to wear masks. They can't go to work in the same way they used to. They can't just travel freely. Everyone's a little bit, mm, I'm not happy about this yet. But there's nothing directly we can do about it. But if you've got a crew member saying, just bug, bugging away at you and you're trying to ignore it, or certainly not being able to take action on it, that bit might start to shout louder and louder and louder. And the thing that you're anxious about becomes ever more pressing, if that makes sense. And then, of course, the other things that you've got to do, all the other crew members saying, yeah, take the dustbins out, pay that bill, go to that meeting. They've now got to shout that much louder to be heard over this part that's shouting. So you end up with like, 
you know, the old stock market films used to see from the 80s where everyone's just shouting and shouting and nobody can hear anything. Yeah. When really the ideal you know, state of affairs in our own mind is like a library where everyone is just silent until somebody needs to be heard. And then they whisper the message that needs to be heard. Yeah. So a lot of the time, the reason we've got excessively anxious is just this natural response of this crew member that still doesn't feel like it's getting heard about the important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of the time it's just, it's like, it's not mind management, it's crew management. You know what I mean? It's like making sure that the interaction between the conscious and the subconscious happens in a way that facilitates positive change and understanding. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then, because I don't want to completely, and there's, there's going to be people that have listened to our talk and have been turned off because of the way that we've kind of downplayed the role of the medical model and medication. So let me, let me try to introduce what medication does to a crew. And again, you correct me, Tim, if, if it doesn't fit with your experience, but you know, medication in your um, example would be like that, um, that NCO, that, that, uh, that first sergeant um, that comes alongside the captain and is taking the instructions and is going to the crew and being, all right, everybody, everybody matters, uh, but you got to speak one at a time, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it's not helping to, you know, that's what medication is doing. It's that it's bringing on that, yeah. that NCO to, to provide order and, and regulation to what's going on. Uh, but the crew yeah. members still have their focus, right? And they still need to get their thing out to the captain. That, that never goes away, right? And that's the problem when yeah, we just rely on when we just yeah. rely on medication. We're not actually growing and developing. We're not actually improving that crew to captain relationship. And eventually, that's exactly it. Yeah, it's it's almost like we are now putting an active distance between conscious and subconscious. When we're sort of we're, we're put in a state of play and where it's possible to to ignore what's going on there, you know, and that, but if those crew members still have that concern and this is the thing, I think when our attitude to our crew is gen, when it's like a negative emotion, one that we're not comfortable feeling, it's like the captain slamming the door to his cabin and saying, shut up. I don't want to hear from you. Yeah. And the problem there is that that part of you, that crew member still thinks it has a message to deliver and that's its only job right now is to deliver this freaking message and you're denying it. And it's, it, this is what I mean by people often say, oh no, I'm, I'm well aware of my anxiety. I'm not ignoring it, but you kind of are because you become aware that the crew's trying to tell you something. Maybe it's not comfortable. Maybe you can't act on it right now, but as a result, all you try and do is push away that feeling of anxiety, push away that crew member. But maybe what we need to do in whatever manner this need whatever form this needs to take for each individual is allow that crew member to be heard and say right i have the message now brilliant let me tell you why you can sit down yeah let me give you the information i have and sometimes the information you have is simply yeah it's terrible but we can't do anything about it right now so i'd rather you as a crew member got on with sailing the ship you know, the day-to-day stuff that we need to do in just to maintain our existence rather than this urgent thing, because I know, I'll know when it's time for the crew to take action on this big thing that we're concerned about. It's like when we, when we go for some tests, some, you know, some, some really serious medical tests, and we've got to wait a few weeks for the results. What are we going to do? It's the most important thing in our life right now. Do I have a serious illness or not? But what's the crew going to do? Sit around waiting for the results or carry on sailing the ship whilst we get the results? Because our interaction and our action 
doesn't need to happen until these results come in. We've literally nothing to do in that interim. But if our crew get engaged in the, the meaning behind the seriousness behind this, this information we're waiting for, they'll stop just sailing the ship. We won't sleep. We won't eat. We won't work, you know. And suddenly, when we get the results, good or bad, we're in an exhausted, nightmarish state when they arrive, rather than at our best, ready to take whatever action is necessary when action is to be taken, you know? Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. Appreciate that. It's a, it's a beautiful metaphor, and I, it really works. And, you know, thank you for being so elaborate with it. <laughs> so... As we kind of come to the the end of our show, one of the things, Tim, that I um, make a promise to my audience is, you know, people have invested, are going to invest over an hour of their life into turning on this podcast, right? And so um, I, I want to reward them for that. I don't want this to be, again, um, just another piece of awareness. I want to be able to have them execute on some of this knowledge. So how do we bring this metaphor of the ship into something that, or a, a, a set of simple things that somebody could do, especially if they, you know, recognize that anxiety is a problem for them. Like what, yeah. what would you have, you know, the, the, the person that's struggling with, with anxiety do like, what, what are the first steps for uh, right the, the, the first thing, and, and I can tell you this because it's what I did. Okay, so I'm not telling you like, oh, I think it'd be good to do this, but this is how I approached it. Um, I have a firm belief that if, you know, like, you know, Thanos clicked his fingers in the Marvel films and half the world, you know, if I could click my fingers and something about everyone in the universe would change, I would turn off our ability to beat ourselves up about things about doing the wrong thing or not doing enough of the right thing, whatever it is. If we could no longer give ourselves shit, people like you and I would be out of a job, right? right? Because, because stuff would happen, yeah. we'd make mistakes, we'd learn, and we'd carry on. And we'd recognize, you know what, I'm a better version of me now because I've just learned something. Isn't that awesome? Let's move forward with even more confidence then, you know? But we don't do that. We do something wrong, and we have a go at ourselves about it. You know, and, and that's effectively the captain beating up the crew for doing their best. Yeah. And that destroys the morale aboard your ship, you know, accumulatively over time. Now, you can change it today. You can simply decide that no matter what goes wrong or what goes not quite right, from now on, all my interactions with my crew, with myself, my own self-talk will now be positive. Even when I recognize, oh, that, that went wrong. Right. What did I learn from that? Okay. I think I can do that better next time. You know, the, the main reason we make the same mistakes over and over again is because we're not listening to the lesson in the mistake. We're just saying, oh, I make mistakes. I'm rubbish. And as a result, your crew carry on sailing the ship, feeling like they can't handle any challenge. Yeah. Our, our self-esteem levels, we often make the mistake of thinking it's down to what other people think of us. It's down to what we think of us. It's down to the story we're telling ourselves. Even if the seed was planted by somebody else, it's us that's watered it over and over again and made that true and turned it into something huge rather than just a tiny little seed that would die in the ground without any, any water to it, you know? So that would be my thing, is that whenever you hear yourself giving yourself a little bit of, you know, rubbish for how you're doing or not doing well enough, change the rhetoric. Whenever you say, I can't, change what you're saying to yourself um because at the end of the day there are things we can't do yeah i'm not i'm not saying let's achieve the impossible let's go for everything but and it's okay to doubt ourselves it's okay to think i'm not sure i can do that 
it's not okay for that then to stop you trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is what I think I would encourage people to do is say that even if this thing that I'm engaging in goes wrong, I will have learned from it. And that's a really good thing. You know, learning is, is how we grow. You said this yourself, you know, the more we learn, the better we get. That's, that's the route to all things. That's the, that's the journey that we are on. We keep learning. And if we accept that we only learn by getting out there and doing that, then let's do it you know and, and honestly it's when i say be the captain of your ship which i say a lot i don't mean beat your crew up you know like lay down the law i mean listen listen to what your mind's telling you because when you listen they'll start listening to you you know the the interaction between what's going on automatically how you respond to what's going on automatically yeah that that's what i would say just i know it's a really it's a really cliche message be kind to yourself kids but that's the reason why i say it because i know the cumulative damage it does to your self esteem levels when you do anything other than being kind to yourself absolutely yeah yeah um you have a great statement right that if you if all you do is beat yourself up then you can only be beaten you just you end know. up beaten yeah exactly right. yeah that's it well, well where else is it going to lead you know right. Yeah. Versus if you build yourself up, you, you know, you're going to build towards something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows how far, who knows how far we can reach if we yeah. just keep building ourselves up higher and higher, you know, Tim, um, for, for folks that are listening and they think, um, I've got a, an issue with anxiety. I need help. Um, I want to find out if Tim can help me. Uh, what would that look like? What, what, what would your initial process be with somebody who is going to uh, enlist you for help? Okay. Um, I mean, I, I see, I see clients one-to-one -one and that's, um, I, we always do an initial consultation, a free consultation just to check we can work together. And that's normally my first port of call. Um, I am, if people follow me on, on my socials is a good start because they'll soon see some bits about me, see if they like the way I sound, the things I say, but I'm hoping as well, I say hoping I'm, I'm literally on the, on the cusp of launching some sort of a group that people can engage in and they can, they can have access to me every week where I can answer their questions directly because you know as I um, you must know this yourself as you engage with more people in terms of an online audience m my business um, motto used to be changing the world one mind at a time <laughs> I've decided one mind at a time is way too slow <laughs> so I'm trying to I'm trying to get it out there to, to bigger groups plus you know it, it's one thing saying you know I can afford one-to-one -one private treatment not everyone can mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm hoping to launch something in the next couple of weeks maybe that will have um, video, audio, and live content with me that people can engage in. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping to create for people. Um, yeah, in the next few weeks, that should go live. Uh, so, if, if people follow me on socials, then then they'll see it when it happens. You know. And wh which platforms are you most active on right now, Tim? I am most active on probably the best one to follow is YouTube channel, which is Tim Box Mind Management. But if you probably the best one to actually get me on uh, Instagram, probably. Tim Box, the control system. That's Love it. it. Love it. Tim, this was a... Yeah, and it's, oh, it's, it's, sorry, it's at the control system. That's what it is on Instagram. At the control system. I'm so system. good with social media. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll put all those links in the show notes so people can uh, not be confused at where it's at. Tim, this was a <laughs> very fun conversation. Um, yeah. I hope we can do more of these because I, you know, I think we could have talked about, we skipped over some things that we could yeah, have definitely uh, really yeah. uh, 
gone deeper too. So we definitely could have talked for longer, I think. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you know, for my listeners, this is gonna be at least 90 minutes. So maybe a little bit shorter than that. So a little bit, a little bit more than what they're used to, but this has been a great conversation. I know people have have learned a lot because of our conversation and ultimately have been helped, especially those that are struggling with anxiety. So um very grateful for your time, sir. No problem. Very thank. I'm grateful that you invited me on. Thank you very much, Nick. And I've, I've learned loads today as well from you. So that's really cool. I like that. All right. Take care, Tim. Take care. Hey, as always, to get the details on this show and to find out more about this guest, head over to my website. My website is www.nicksotello.com forward slash T-U-L podcast, the Upgraded Life podcast. While you're over at my website, don't forget to check out the three opportunity buttons at the very top. They are scheduling a time with me. I'll give you a free 30-minute strategy session. Checking out CBD products from Nature's Ultra. And then also, if you're looking to create an additional stream of income, I can help you out with that too. This takes 20 minutes of your time. Click on the button that says Income Boost. Give me your name and email, and I'll send you a presentation. Thank you again so much for listening to my show, The Upgraded Life Podcast. I'm dedicated to this show because I've seen too many people live a life that just really wasn't about realizing and reaching their potential. So if you listen to this show and you were somehow, some way inspired to take action, let me know by going over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review, and that will tell me that you enjoyed the show. This is Dr. Nick Sotelo, and I'm urging you to do something today to realize and reach your potential. And I'll catch you on the next show.